Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. There has been a lot of focus, rightfully so, this year on COVID-19. In this bonus episode of the On Poly podcast, we wanted to highlight two stories, one federal, one provincial, that are not COVID-related and flew under the radar this year. It's Tuesday, July the 6th, 2021, so let's get to it. JMM, I know we said last week was our last podcast, but we wanted to share a bonus episode with a couple of stories produced with students at Western University's Master of Media in Journalism and Communications program. So why don't you start and tell us about the first story? Uh, The first story we have here is about a private member's bill introduced by NDP MPP Terence Kernahan from the Riding of London North Centre. His bill would, if passed, make it an offence to distribute uh, a graphic image of a fetus in the mail uh, or through any other means, unless it's in uh, an opaque envelope or package. Uh, The idea here is to restrict the use of uh, disturbing images by anti-abortion activists. Uh, Here's Western University master's student Hélène Bigrat-Dutosac. It was early October 2020, one of those days where you can feel winter is right around the corner. Katie Dean was busy getting ready for work when she got a text from her neighbor. My neighbor and friend texted me and said, they're on our street, Katie. So at first I was like, oh God, I just want to go and hide. Katie lives in London, Ontario. The city is home to a chapter of the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, an anti-abortion group based in Calgary. One of the things the group does is leave graphic images of alleged aborted fetuses in people's mailboxes. And they'd hit Katie's neighborhood. So I continued getting ready for work. And then um, I just started thinking about it. And it just made me angry. Here I am hiding in my own home from, from violent images that are gory and disgusting. And I just felt angry for the first time. I think I felt just really angry. For Katie, not only were these images disturbing... They were personal. I did have a termination in 2004 for medical reasons. It was at 19 weeks, and it was a very, very difficult thing for me. Um, The single most traumatic event in my life, for sure. It was a wanted um, baby, but she was very, very sick, so I made a very difficult decision. Um, I don't regret that decision. Um, It was mine to make. And so when I get those images in my mailbox, I just, that's not okay. You know, like, just leave me alone. So it's already hard enough. You don't have to attack women and shame them. Her abortion experience, as well as receiving graphic flyers in her mailbox, led Katie to co-found the Viewer Discretion Legislation Coalition, or VDLC for short. The mandate of the group is to change the legislation surrounding how graphic anti-abortion pamphlets can be distributed. And when she received the images in her mailbox, Katie decided enough was enough. So she reached out to Terence Kernigan, NDP MPP for London North Centre. My office started to receive many concerns and calls, emails about graphic, gory images that they were receiving in their mailboxes. 
He decided the best way to deal with this was to draft legislation that would require the images to be put in envelopes with a warning so that people would have a choice. It would be up to their consent whether they chose to engage with these images uh, or to simply uh, leave them aside. For Kernigan, this issue goes well beyond the politics surrounding abortion rights. As he puts it, a lot of graphic images come with warnings. Why not graphic anti-abortion pamphlets? You know, these, these pamphlets included gory, traumatizing, and very difficult images. You know, sometimes kids who were coming home from school would pick up the mail and would see them. And I believe that parents should have the rights to make sure that their children aren't exposed to these images without their consent. You know, you take a look at all types of media, whether it's music or games or television or movies. Anytime there's content that some viewers may find objectionable, there's a warning. So people who uh, are choosing to engage with that media have the opportunity to say yes or to say no. So to me, it's all about consent. On March 8th, International Women's Day, Kernigan tabled the legislation for Bill 259, also known as the Viewer Discretion Act. Some of the people and organizations who oppose Bill 259 have argued that the bill constitutes an infringement on the right to freedom of expression. But Dean disagrees. It absolutely is not. Um, you can deliver your propaganda and you can hand it out on the streets to anybody that's willing to accept it, that wants to see and wants to learn about their stance. It's, it's not being forced on somebody. Kernigan agrees. He says anti-abortion groups are free to express themselves, but that they should do so politely and respectfully. That might mean putting graphic content in envelopes, but Kernigan also wants these groups to consider whether they need to be using these images at all. There is no requirement for them to make their case or make their point or state their beliefs by using these, these images, which are gory and graphic and traumatizing. Now that Bill 259 has been tabled, Katie is planning on contacting the Ford government. She says she'd like to see the bill debated at Queen's Park before the summer, and that the VDLC is launching a letter-writing campaign aimed at conservative MPPs. She wants to ask the conservatives to put the bill on the agenda as soon as possible. While Katie seemed very excited about Bill 259, she knows there's a long road ahead. We are here for the long haul. We're not gonna be just disappearing. We're gonna fight this um, until we get some kind of change. This has passed first reading. Now, however, it is a private member's bill, and it's an opposition private member's bill at that, not one from the government backbenches. So uh, what odds do we give that this will ever become law? <laughs> not great right now. Uh, opposition private member's bills uh, very rarely, unless they have the support of the government, uh, become law. Uh, it does happen, and uh, it's worth saying that the legislature did pass some restrictions on uh, anti-abortion activism under the uh, last liberal government, but they did that with all-party support, so it is not impossible. Uh, but at the moment, it's it's as far as you can be from passage and still exist as a bill, uh, you and I both know, you know, getting first reading is, you know, the, the very basic first step. Uh, this would still need to get through a second reading vote uh, and then have a committee hearing uh, and then have a third reading vote. Uh, and uh, of course, would then need to be signed by the lieutenant governor. Uh, none of that has happened yet. And 
as we keep reminding people, we're less than a year from an election. Uh, at the moment, it is not even clear if this will get a second reading debate uh, before the next election, much less all the other steps. And part of the problem here, just so we're clear, is the government House leader is the person who decides what bills are going to be called. So you got to ask yourself, why would the government House leader want to give somebody on the opposition benches, whom he is trying to defeat in the next election, uh, something to hang their hat on, such as a successfully passed private member's bill? Is that the gist of it? Right. And, uh, you know, (laughs) politics is funny. And so I I think one reason why the Tories might want uh, legislation like this to pass without uh, any kind of um, big public show of opposition uh, is that uh, abortion is not a good issue for the Tories. They, you know, they have internal disagreements within their caucus. And every time it becomes a very sort of salient issue, you know, in the run up to an election, it hurts their chances. Uh, So, if this makes it to a second reading vote, if it gets called, um, it's possible that the government might just let it pass the second reading vote. But then, of course, they can also consign it to committee purgatory and never hear from it again. Mm-hmm. You want to really get deep into the weeds here? How about the fact that the government also needs to consider who's got the better chance of winning that riding next time? If they think the New Democrats are unlikely to be reelected in that riding and that the liberals might actually win it, They might want to give the NDP MPP Kernahan this political victory to help him beat the liberal because the Tories probably haven't got a shot at winning that riding. How deep in the weeds are we right now on the political machinations (laughs) behind this whole thing? Well, and I mean, even if they do not... hand the seat to the NDP, a, div- a divided opposition, uh, a more closely divided opposition between the NDP and the Liberals in that seat is probably on balance uh, better for the Tories. Okay, onto a different story now. Back in March of this year, the federal government announced it was cutting funding to organizations that distribute accessible reading materials because it was hoping the private sector would step up. The government eventually reversed the funding cuts, but it highlighted the fact that funding for these types of things can be unstable. Here's Western master student Jessica Singer. During the pandemic, we've all had to say farewell to favorite pastimes like going to the movies, spending time with friends, or going to concerts. One of the few activities still possible is reading or listening to a good book. Reading is a source of solace for many Canadians, especially with the loss of social interaction. But for Brian and Carrie Kajewski, it's not always easy. They are siblings who were both born blind, which means they rely on Braille and audiobooks to read. So when they learned the federal government was going to cut funding for two organizations that distribute those books, well, they were frustrated. This has happened in the past. It's, and it's, it's an ongoing thing that continues to happen. We need to look deeper into this. And as Brian and I have gotten older, we've realized that we need to have a better understanding and we want an inclusive system across Canada. The Liberal government's 2020 fall economic statement said funding for CELA, the Centre for Equitable Library Access, and NELS, the National Network for Equitable Library Service, was being phased out over four years. According to Statistics Canada, about 10% of Canadians have a print disability. CELA and NELS use federal funds to curate and distribute accessible reading material. The two organizations currently receive $4 million in funding, and they've been receiving this funding for the past four years. 
Both organizations said the government never warned them that the cut was coming. A protest campaign was launched in response to the cuts, and on March 16th, the government announced they would restore $1 million in funding for the upcoming budget year. Both organizations say they are grateful for the one-year reprieve, but this isn't the first time this has happened. In 2018, the federal government said they would no longer fund the production of accessible books. Hours after the announcement, the Liberals renewed the funding. Four years ago, the government also created a working group with disability stakeholders and the publishing industry. Their goal was to make books born accessible, or made accessible from the beginning of production. Only around 7 to 10 percent of the world's published content is accessible. Making sure books are born accessible is supposed to help fill this backlog, but Carrie says this won't be an easy task. Right now, a lot of websites play catch up, a lot of companies, they're trying to update their websites and things, whereas if you start from the beginning, from scratch, and you start accessible. But that's not going to fill all the little gaps that are going to come up that still need some funding and things. There's a lot of things that um, are, you know, from back catalogs and old collections and things that that were not born accessible. So we, you know, we have to fill that that gap still. Brian and Carrie say that making books born accessible is an admirable goal. But they also say that many in the blind community are still segregated from the public library system. CELA is more of a privatized library system that's sure you can you can get some some access through your public libraries. But the fact of the matter is it's still separate enough that most librarians and stuff aren't educated on this and they will help blind people that come into their library. They will help them sign up for CELA. But from there, it's like, okay, now CELA takes over and we have nothing else to do with it. Where, in my opinion, being a public library, organizations like NELS are trying to integrate that more so that blind people are integrated into the public library system instead of having to go to this separate segregated library. And I think that's the overall goal in the future is to get us all involved instead of separating blind Canadians out. Specifically NELS, like we say, who is still new and still growing, they are employing blind people and they are working with publishers to make things accessible. And, you know, they they do a lot with the little money that they do have. And so if they if that gets cut back, they're not going to be able to produce the same amount of material and they're not going to be able to hire as many people. And it's, you know, it's just going to they're not going to be able to, to grow and we want them to grow. Brian and Carrie say that a lot of their concerns about the library system are pushed to the side. This is because many blind Canadians aren't included in the decision-making process. We should be part on the table as well. We should be in the discussions, not just these higher-up organizations that are making all these decisions. The blind public should be consulted with this stuff, the actual patrons of these services. Cuts in government funding tend to grab headlines. But once the government reinstates funding, Brian and Carrie feel like an important conversation is cut short. Like we said, bringing attention to these things, not only when there's a huge headline and we want to we want to hear from more blind people. We need to get more blind people speaking and it, it's exhausting. Carrie and I getting involved in advocacy the last few years. It's it is a lot of work and sometimes it's just like, why am why do I have to be the one to always be doing this stuff? But it kind of comes down to the fact that if the consumers aren't speaking about it, then changes really won't happen for the better. Brian and Carrie believe blind Canadians need to be a part of discussions that impact their day to day lives. They say money is one thing, but making good use of money is another. And that was episode 119 of the Unpoly podcast, our little bonus episode to kick off your summer. It was produced by Katie O'Connor, editing by Matthew O'Mara, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. Special thanks to Calvi Ann Grace Leon, Kelly Wang, Hélène Bigra Dutrasek, 
Jessica Singer, and Julia Hoffer. JMM, let's do it one last time until we reconvene next month. As my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. Steve.